Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Proverbs 28, verse 4 says, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, everyone who gathers here this morning are united in our condemnation under the law. We have all broken it. Most of us on the way here to church, we we all stand uh, hopeless and in need of salvation, which you have provided through your Son. Lord, we thank you for his great work on the cross. We thank you for the love that brings us here together. And we, we even now thank you for the law, the law that condemned us, that now blesses us in Christ. We make this prayer in his name. Amen. So we are on chapter 19 of the confession this morning of the law of God. So, you know, in other words, another nice easy topic for the next 45 minutes. So just sit back and enjoy. Has anyone seen, this came out back in, I believe, 2015. Has anyone seen the movie, Steven Spielberg movie, Bridge of Spies, today? One person. Oh, dear. I may have chosen this analogy poorly. Well, as in all of my, well, as in all of the movie references and pop culture quotes that I share up here, I'm not endorsing this uh, fully. But there's a very interesting scene that, um, that helped me as I started to think about this chapter. Um, the leaked... Tom Hanks plays the lead character in this movie. And he, plays, uh, he plays a historical figure named James Donovan. If, you're, if you follow Cold War history or studied that around the middle of the 20th century, you'll have heard of James Donovan. He was a lawyer. Uh, he was involved in many things throughout the Cold War. And he, he kind of came, started to rise to prominence with the discovery of a Russian spy in New York City named Rudolf Abel. Rudolf Abel was arrested and then put on trial for espionage in the United States. And being the United States, he was given legal counsel, and his legal counsel was James Donovan. Donovan, uh, Donovan decided that because, because it needed to be a fair trial, he would defend Abel, a, uh, a KGB agent working in the United States. He would defend him to the utmost of his abilities. And it was a controversial decision at the time. There were many who would just say, okay, yeah, I know he's got to have a lawyer, but, you know, let's just kinda, let's, but we all know he's guilty, so let's just see him condemned as quickly as possible. And so there's a scene in the movie where he's in a, he's in a jazz club late one night, and, a, and a CIA, one of his CIA handlers comes to meet with him. And he asks him, he said, so, counselor, has your, uh, has your client said anything? Donovan kind of looks at him funny. He's like, I don't know what you mean. Um, and so, his, uh, so his, uh, the CIA handler starts to press him a little bit more. And Donovan finally just says, we're not having this conversation. So... His handler being in the CIA said, no, of course, strictly off the record. He said, no, no, I mean, we're not, Donovan replies, no, 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 we're not having this conversation at all. And so, uh, so the CIA agent tries to placate him and says, oh, come on, counselor. And Donovan says, you know, I hate it when people say that to me. I had a judge say it to me twice today. Oh, come on, counselor. And the more I hear it, the more I don't like it, he says. And so the, the agent says to him, well, okay, okay, well, listen, I understand attorney-client privilege. I understand all the legal gamesmanship, and I understand that's how you make a living. But I'm talking to you about something else, security of your country. And I'm sorry if the way I put it offends you, but we need to know what Abel is telling you. You understand me, Donovan? We need to know. Don't go Boy Scout on me. We don't have a rule book here. And so Donovan, resp- Donovan looks at him for just a moment and says, your agent Hoffman, 
right? And Hoffman says, yeah. He said, German extraction. The agent says, yeah, so? Donovan says, my name's Donovan, Irish, both sides, mother and father. I'm Irish, you're German, but what makes us both American? Just one thing, only one. The rule book. We call it the Constitution, and we agree to the rules. And that's what makes us Americans. It all makes us Americans. So don't tell me there's no rule book. Um, I won't quote the rest of that. It gets a little colorful for Sunday school. So again, if you watch this movie, watch with discernment. Um, but it was an interesting thought. What makes us Americans is not, uh, we, American, America was and is a nation of immigrants. We're all from all over the place, and our ancestors from all over the globe before they came here to this land. And so what Donovan was saying is it is the law that makes us Americans. And that is kind of the heart of the American experiment for the last over 250 years. The statement that our identity is not going to be in a king or even so much in a geography, as important that is, but that we are going to try to set a law uh, that, all men, that puts all men stand equally before. We have yet to see whether, uh, what the Lord's promise is going to be for our nation, but I th it's a concept I want us to think about as we look at God's law today. How does the law bring us together? Just a moment. I forgot to actually pull up the confession I was supposed to be teaching on this morning. Get that. Everyone got their copy in front of them. Let's turn to section one. Chapter 19, section one. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Now, at this point, there's so many of these, con none of these concepts that we've really just read are new. We've actually touched on these or seen that or heard them implied, implied in some of the previous sections that we've looked at today. God made, this is another way of stating the covenant of works by which God first entered into relationship with his creatures, with man and woman, in the garden at the beginning of time. In the very beginning was the law that we're looking at today. God's law is central to his word. We see it everywhere we turn, from the garden, through the Old Testament, into the new, where, where Jesus and his, and his apostles afterwards who had finished writing the Bible are always grappling with law and our relationship to it. Indeed, I think if you look at you know, the, the chief topics among the scripture, only Christ himself eclipses the importance of the law. Because the law is, because before Christ came, before salvation accomplished, the law was our great problem. The law is what condemned us. The law is what separated us from God. Because the law, the law is an, exp an expression, simply an expression of God's goodness. It is in that way uh, everything that we are not. When we are fallen and miserable and desperate. God is perfect and holy and complete in of himself. And, that, and nothing makes that contrast more stark than his law. As such, this law, and God wrote this law into our hearts from the very beginning, making it inescapable. And we could, we could look at a lot of things to see this, but honestly, who doesn't know this? Who doesn't know that law and the desire for law is written into our hearts? Even, those of us, even before we love God, even for those who still don't, we still exercise 
what we th you know, what we view as moral authority. We still make judgments. We all exercise moral judgment, skewed, twisted, corrupted as they are. In Romans chapter 2, Paul opens by saying, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you ju judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, there's a lot going on there, but just simply, simply see Paul's observation. We all pass judgment upon others. Occasionally upon ourselves, but usually upon others. That's much easier and much more comfortable for ourselves. Um, but even the most hardened sinner has something that he believes is right or wrong. We all have this desire for law built into us. We also all bear a conscience. Further down in Romans 2, verse 15, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So that put... So the law came right in the very beginning, and the law was almost as soon as it was given, written in a man's heart, it was broken. That brings us to section two. It says, this law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. So even after, the, even after man fell, the law remained perfect. Nothing wrong with the law. How could it be? There's nothing wrong with God. So there's nothing wrong with, his, <clears throat> nothing wrong with the law that he gave to reflect it. His law, which he wrote, his law which he gave simply to Adam in the garden, and which he wrote upon the heart of his, first, of, of his people, he codified and had Moses deliver in the form of the Ten Commandments that we know today. Uh, a, sum, a, deet, a, sum, a precise and yet sweeping summary of all God's law commands that we live under. As elders, when we, come, when we, bring, uh, when we bring particularly covenant children to the Lord's table, before we do, we ask them a series of questions, and one of them is to recite the Ten Commandments. Um, it's, one of the, uh, it's one of the regular things that we have as we go through it. And so I'm curious this morning, if any of you, you all were being re-examined this morning, could you get through all ten? Let's try to do this together. What are the Ten Commandments? Somebody shout one out. Don't need to be in order. Well, okay, one at a time, one at a time. We're not speaking in tongues this morning. <laughs> one at a time. All right, I heard something over here. No other gods before me. And which one is that? That's number one. And so what, is, and what, is, what question does that answer? True and living God. So in other words, it tells us who we should worship. Yep. All right. What's next? Shall not bow down to them nor serve them, visiting the iniquities, fathers upon their children, or the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Yeah, that's the long one. That's the one that, uh, that's the one that everyone comes to a screeching halt in their catechism memorization when they have to get the second commandment. And the Lutherans skip. Ah, do they? 
And you know where they got that idea. Catholic, the Catholic Church combines one and two and splits ten into uh, ten into two, as well. Which is an interesting point. So, what does the second commandment mean? How? How what? How to worship? How to worship who? The God we just learned about in the first commandment. That's right. Because if God is God, then who gets to decide how to worship him? He does. So that's the second commandment. And yes, um, I did not know that about Lutherans, but Roman Catholics combine commandments one and two and split up uh, ten into two additional commandments to pull the force, some of the force, out of the second commandment. Um, because if you, read, if you read their catechisms, and particularly their discussions of images, They'll, they'll mention this commandment very, very briefly and then say, but there's lots of examples of using images, so we can too, um, to put it simply. So they try to, they try to kind of uh, blunt the force of this one a little bit. What's next? You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. And what is that telling us about? So we've talked about who, we've talked about how. what not to do, but it also tells us who should be doing the worshiping, doesn't it? It takes the focus on God and how he should be worshiped and says, now you, do, now you do the worshiping and do it with reverence before me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, what's next? We're going in order here. We're doing great. This next one should be easy. Honor the Sabbath day, which is what we're all trying to do right now, isn't it? Keep it holy. Interesting shift. The first three commandments are negative. Don't worship any other god. Don't use images. Don't, uh, don't take his name in vain. And then the fourth is a positive. It's a positive command telling us to do something, which is interesting. Which is interesting. We'll see the same in the fifth here in just a minute. And so the fourth commandment, answers when shall we worship and so and what it teaches us is that god god owns everything but he gives us six days of the week and tells us to give him the seventh or give him the first to be precise today what's the next commandment hmm so what's the shift now what's the shift in focus Remember, the confession talks about two tables. Who are the focus and points? Now, man, and so now we're shifting. And it's interesting to look at these commandments and see how commandments two, three, and four flow naturally out of one. And as we look at, as we look at the fifth, we'll see how six, seven, eight, and nine, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten uh, flow out of that. All right, so that's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, but specifically honor, uh, honor and respect the authorities placed over you as well as authority given to you. What's next? Dan, I, man, you mumbled it. Say it out loud, brother. Do not, shall not, is that what it says? Murder. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is, yeah, the words are interesting. We, have, we are to reverence human life. Notice the order. We're to reverence God first. And now we get the sixth command, we're to reverence the, image, the life that bears his image as well. 
It is not a blank, as we see in the, we always remember the Ten Commandments aren't, were not given to us alone in isolation. They were given to us with the case law. They were given to us with many, many examples uh, to draw out their meaning and to see them applied. And what we see is that man's life is to be treated with reverence and never to be taken unless God directs us to. It's very specific instances. That's another Sunday school class for another day. What's number seven? Number seven is an important one. Do not commit adultery. Now, there's a lot of, you know, interesting how sh- I think sometimes the simplicity is the most interesting thing about these commandments. You shall not commit adultery. There are a lot of sexual sins that could have been forbidden, but adultery was the one that was chosen. Why is that? Why do you think that is? God sets up marriage as an institution. All right. Yep, that's close. I think that's getting to it. Any other thoughts? Right, hang on. In the back. God is our maker. God is our husband. Yep. Yep. Getting closer. Dan? It should be holy. Hmm. I think you're get, I think that I think you're getting you're getting closer to what I'm thinking there. When God designed human sexuality, he designed it and marriage at the same time. There was never this thought, there was never this thought that okay, over here we have sex and over here we have marriage and you know these would work great together. Uh, and for many people they do. No, it was like when he designed when he designed man male and female, he immediately performed the first wedding ceremony in the garden right then and there. There is, no, there is no sexuality outside of marriage that God condones. And we need to remember this today because our nation is racked with debate over abortion again, again and homosexuality and transgenderism and all kinds of confusion. But all of these things, uh, but all of these, all of these errors, all of these confusions, all of these sins flow back to flow back to a, you know, a dispute in the, you know, back in the early 1900s back in the early to mid-1900s, where we said, you know what, sex is really not about marriage. It's not about fidelity, companionship, childbearing. Those are all things that just happen. Sex is really just about me, about the pleasure I feel in it. And when we began to make, when we began to make human sexuality, you know, when we began to break it away from all the purposes that God designed for it, especially in marriage, then, everything, then a prudent observer would be able to see that everything we're dealing with now flew out of uh, came out of that decision. So it's really free love that leads to all the abuse, uh, all the abuse and problems that we have today. Abortion, homosexuality, fruitlessness, abandonment, abuse, they all flow from either denial of God's design for sexuality or ignoring all the aspects that are supposed to be included in it. All right, number eight. What's number eight? Shall not steal. I forgot to write that one down, so I'm glad you all remembered that. Do not take, I'm taking away from the Lord's word today. That's not, not a good look for Sunday school. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Establishing not only the evil of theft, but also the importance of property and ownership in the economy of the world that God created. Number nine. Shall not lie. That is included in it, but the, the word is specifically 
bear false witness against your neighbor. So it's very much, it's very much not only about the truth, about, but about relationships built upon truth, particularly in legal settings. What about number 10? Shall not desire slash covet. That's right. In other words, you shall be content. Now, why do we teach these? Now, why do we want our children to know these? Why do we remind ourselves of these every day? Specifically here in the context of the church, specifically in what's, uh, what, you know, some of the elements that are behind me. Why do we consider the law? We do fail at it. And when we consider our failure, what does that do? What is that supposed to do? Humble us. Yep. And turn us to look towards... Drive us to Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. That's exactly right. That's always where we should end. It should show us that we need Christ and bring us back to him. As we look at these, these lay out what the, what the writers of Westminster Confession and others have, um, have identified as the moral law. These are the, specifically those aspects of God's character uh, that are manifest in his commandments, and they're summarized in these ten. Or... They're summarized even more succinctly in Jesus' teaching from Matthew 22. Does anyone remember how did Jesus summarize the law? The law and the prophets. You shall... Hang, hang on, Zandy, you've got a lot. <laughs> Go ahead, Zandy. And. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind your neighbor as yourself. And it's from that we not only get a beautiful summary of the law, but we also get this division into the two tables that, we see, that we've seen reflected here. And that's where the divines would split it into two. Now, section three t- turns from the moral law to a form, of a form of the moral law applied that we saw in the Old Testament. Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several, type, several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So we're talking here about the ceremonial law. This is how worship and life was to be conducted uh, under in the Old Testament. And when I say in the Old Testament or in the Jewish church, what I don't want us to do this morning is to think, okay, this is just, some, this is just a section that deals with those curious antiquities uh, in the nation of Israel thousands of years ago that have no relevance for us. Don't think about them that way. Think about yourself instead. You're not sitting here in a church building in Spartanburg in 2022, in AD 2022. Think of yourself sitting before the tabernacle 2,000 years longer than that, 3,500 years ago, gathered in the tabernacle or in the court of the temple. And all the things that we think of now as ceremonial laws and in the past, these are just Sunday morning things, well, Saturday morning things for you then. It's just church stuff. It's the way the spiritual life of the people of God would have been laid out. The sacrifices, the incense, the, uh, the ritual purifications, these to think of these the way you think of coming to church on Sunday, you're sending your children off to catechism class downstairs, preparing to li- listen to the preaching of the word, 
um, you know, prayer before God. These are all just what our, what our brothers and sisters in the, who were underage before Christ came would have known as a spiritual life of, of the church. And we know this, and, we, and when we consider this, we can, many of the same warnings that God gave to his people regarding these can still be made to us today. In Hebrews chapter 10, the, writers, the writer uh, quotes extensively Psalm 40, and he writes, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had conscience of sins. But in, those, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written to me, to do your will, O God. Right as, as soon as God pulled his people out of Egypt and brought them out of the house of slavery, he began laying out uh, what, their, what their lives and, their spirit, and what their spiritual practice before him should look like. And he did it in great length through Exodus, through Leviticus. You know, Leviticus, everyone's Bible reading programs goes great until they get into the, at least for me, I get to the purification laws on, and the treatment of leprosy, and I get queasy, and, I have to, and that's when the discipline really has to kick in to get through. It's hard going wading through a lot of this. And it seems alien and foreign to us today. But, what, uh, but what, would, what would have seemed equally odd to the children of Israel at the time of the Exodus became, had become familiar to them by the, by the period of the later kings of Judah. I'm talking about Ahaz and Hezekiah, the, the kings uh, that Isaiah would have been preaching to and the people along with him. And in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. What an amazing picture. Your hands are covered in blood there at the end. The same thing could be said to us. If we come into this building and our hearts are not in it, if we're distracted and we're just going through the motions because... That's what Christians do. There is no righteousness to be found here in us. It is, only with, it is only when our hearts are fully in this that God is pleased with the worship that we'll bring to him later today, which is a good reminder, particularly since we have the Lord's table before us later this morning, which, make, which is going to make things real again. And that's where we need the law, to delve into our hearts and to show us, Chuck Fultz, you are just playing games with me this morning. The Almighty God is seeing the games you're playing. He's seeing deception. He's seeing how little you care to be here and how much, and how much you need it. Also, just remember, as we can, so when you consider the ceremonial law, people are quick to just say, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. No, we don't. Praise God. Praise God. I had bacon for breakfast this morning. 
which my brothers and sisters in Israel would not have had because God said, don't. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but ultimately I'm God and I say don't, and that's enough for you. So praise God, I have that, I have that liberty today. Uh, you can enjoy bacon before coming to worship with his people. So yes, we can praise God for the change, but I always want you to think when you would go to worship in the Old Testament, you would see blood. You would see lots of blood. It was gory and horrific. And what, and what was the Lord trying to tell his people? This is the blood. This is your blood. This is what your sins deserve. It's your blood scattered on this altar. In my mercy, it was your cow or your pigeon that you brought this morning, but it should be yours. He wanted them to see that. Now, will any of you see any blood in worship today? I certainly hope not. Uh, the elders have no plans for any actual blood. What will you see instead? What will you see instead? Wine. You will see wine, which signifies, but it's not really, is it? Because when was that blood shed? On the cross. On the cross. We will see, so we will see not, we will see not, our hands, we will see, another, we will remember another one's blood shed in our place today. And that is, that's the context in which Christ gave the Lord's Supper. When, we, when Andrew reads the words of institution later today, just remember that. Remember thousands of years of blood, blood, blood. And now he's coming and saying, now do this. Because in just a few days, my blood will be shed and it will all be done. It will be sufficient. So this is what I want you to remember instead. Also remember, we're not coming in here and killing things. We're literally sitting down to a feast, to a banquet, to a meal. It's a family dinner with our Savior to remember what he has done, to partake in faith. And so now instead of blood, we have wine. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of memory. The ceremonial law was used by God to set his people apart, to make them different from those around them. But it's not, the only thing, it's not the only thing he gave to set them apart. In section four, the confession writes, to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. This echoes, this echoes um, Moses' great sermon, Deuteronomy. His, basically his closing sermon to the people of Israel. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So as he set apart the people and his church in the Old Testament, so also he set apart the nation that was built upon it. This showed this again, like the ceremonial law, the civil laws that he gave the nation of Israel, showed them his claim to be the ruler of all things, demonstrated them their need of a savior, and provided a testimony of his glory to the surrounding nations. Now, with the end of the nation of Israel, um, his specific commands regarding the civil governance of that nation ended as well. They were laid aside. They were laid aside, but the divines don't quite just leave it there. They say, 
further than the general equity thereof may require. Um, this famous little passage that contains so much in it. And it simply means that where the civil commands to the nation of Israel, where they applied a specific moral law or, or biblical or, or godly principle in them, then we can still learn and benefit in ourselves, in our own lives, in our churches, even the, nation, even the nations that we live in. There are still much to learn about how God took his moral law and applied it specifically to a nation in the past. Now, at this point in the discussion, having looked at God's initial giving of the law and his application to his church and the state, it would be natural to ask, so what, where does that leave us today? Where is the law today? We've looked at the church before Christ comes. Now we live by his grace following the coming of the Savior. And so that's where, he turn, that's where the divines turn in section 5. All men are under the law. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, much strengthen this application. The law is still with us. It still condemns all of us. We are, everyone who's born, just by the very fact of being born, is under this law because of the world that God's created. As such, the law, which should have been such a thing of beauty, should have been this, this intimate expression of, God, of God's character and nature directly to his creation. Instead, it has, it has forged the chains which bind us to death and which cannot be broken by anything but the lawgiver himself. So all men are under the law, except for those that God has saved. And, those are, uh, and that is what Christ came to do. Again, we've talked about this many times uh, as we've looked through the, the other 18 chapters that come before this. The law that we could not keep, Christ came and took its demands upon himself. He kept them perfectly during his life and then paid the price for our failure in his death time and time again. So that leads very naturally to um, section 6, the uses of law. Although true believers be not under the law as the covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof although not due as to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Okay, that is a lot right there. Let's, uh, let's try to unpack that for just a minute. Whether you've read it here for the first time or whether you've been in Sunday school lessons before, you may have heard of the uses of the right uses of the law, particularly as Christians. So what are some of the uses of the law? If you, look at, if you look closely at what we just read, 
uh, the, the divines seem to break them down into four things, although they're, uh, although they're usually given as three. It's a mirror. Okay, you want to expand upon that? So it's a mirror, and it shows us that it shows us the it shows us the sharp contrast between our sin and His perfection, which is where we started. All right, that is that is one. It reveals the wickedness of sin in our hearts, and nothing shows it. It's not just a it's a mirror that shows us ourselves, but it's also a light. It's also a light that explores the dark recesses of our heart, and shows us where we sin. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, it does. And what so? And we talked about this already today. When we learn the law, when it when it searches our own hearts, when we share it with others, and they see the sin in theirs, what is this always to push us to? Christ, Christ. That's right. Because if we consider the law, if we try to consider the law in isolation, we shall simply despair. But the Lord never wants us to be there. That's why that many that's why many Reformed scholars have called the law our tutor. It is our teacher, it is our instructor to bring us to Christ. And not just ourselves, but others as well. Because as the law, because as they it's a law, as others see the law lived out in our lives, as they see it, as they hear it taught, then they would begin to realize, you know what? If I'm not sure yet if there is a God, but if there is, I'm in big trouble. Because, um, because his law is a direct opposite of what I'm living out. What else does it do? So, that, so that's the law bringing us to Christ. But what else does it bring us to? What else does it do after we've come to Christ? Forms us of the will of God. To what end? Before we learned about the will of God and learned we're living in contradiction to it. So now we're in Christ. Now what is now what happens when we hear the law, the will of God? Binds him to walk accordingly. Well, well said, as everything in the confession. So now we see, now we see the law. Now we know the will of God. And what is our desire? Not perfect, not complete, but where but there's something new in there. There's something new in this regenerate heart we've talked about. What does that regenerate heart want to do when it when it hears the will of God? Okay, thank you, Mike. We're, so God tells us what he wants us to do, and what do we want to do? We want to do it. We want to do it. How could we not? How could we not? This law that was dragging us down, that condemned us to hell, now we hear it, and, we think, and, now, we, and now we don't hear the thunderings from Mount Sinai. Now we hear the words of our Savior who has saved us. And he says, now come and follow me. And so what else could our desire be but to follow him? The confession kind of breaks this into two things. They say, for the regenerate, it restrains our remaining corruptions by forbidding sin. Don't do this. And it reminds us, and we're reminded that while the peril of judgment is away from us, that doesn't mean, there, that doesn't mean sin is without consequences now. That's a very, it's dangerous to think that now, well, I'm under grace, not under law, now I can sin and do what I want. May it never be, as Paul would say. May it never be. For though we, remain, so though we are saved in Christ, we are now sons. And part of the love we get are the, is the discipline of our Father, as he lays out in Hebrews 12. For those he loves, that he will correct. So when I sin, when you sin, when you do, then the Lord sees it all. It pains him, first of all. 
I mean, that should be enough right there. The thought of giving our Savior a moment's more pain than he's already endured for our sakes, how, you know, God forbid, how could we ever do that? So it pains him, but he loves us so much he's not going to let us continue in it. Instead, he's going to discipline and correct our hearts and bring us back. But there's another side of this. Again, that's the negative, uh, that's the negative application of the law. But there is always in God's commands a negative and a positive. Don't do this, do this instead. And so the law and the blessings associated would remind us, uh, remind us what the prosperity and the joy that is to be found in following him, uh, in following his law and keeping it. The divines are very careful here. Uh, they're very careful. They say it's very important to understand that we, are not, we do not prosper in keeping the law because we fulfill this demands. We can't do that. That ship has sailed. That ship has sailed. There is no covenant of works to keep. So we, even when we do a good thing, that's of God's grace. When we are blessed or prosper because of doing that good thing, that is also a blessing that God does not have to give. God does not have to give. We need to remember that. We do not have God over a barrel at any point in this. But he is pleased to bless obedience. Why? Because he loves, our, he loves his law and he wants us to love it too. And so we see men and communities and nations blessed when they follow God's law, not because he has to, not because, that's, not because that's the way the world works anymore, but because that's still the way God works. He still loves faithfulness and obedience before him. Does that make sense? It's a little nuance here, but I think it's important to remember. At the end of the day, we are but unprofitable servants. At our very best, at our very best, we fall so short of our mere duty. If we could be perfect, we would have done only what God expected. And yet, with the little that we are able to do by his grace, that he is pleased to bless that so richly. Amen? Hmm. So that brings us to the conclusion. Uh, brings us to the conclusion. I'm going to, instead of reading it, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, because I think, it, I think it sums it up beautifully for us from the pages of Scripture. It really, some, it's, it br- briefly states the conclusion that your mind should have come to by now. There is now no conflict between law and gospel. Both have been brought together, uh, brought together on the cross. The demands of, of law satisfied, and now its blessings opened up to those who are under grace. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 7, says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So again, remember thousands of years of ceremonial and civil law of the nation of Israel. And, all, and that whole historical knowledge is in the head of first century Jews who have heard of Christ and his claims and are wondering, what do we make? What do we make of this? What is happening? And so um, Paul or Apollos, whoever's writing here in Hebrews, is breaking it down and saying, hey, 
You remember this, pa- this big, old, long, amazing passage from Jeremiah 31, which he quotes from here extensively? This has happened. This is what it's all about. Jesus has come. The Savior has come. And now, not only is there salvation and through a new covenant, now that law that, we str- that our nation struggled and was condemned for breaking uh, so many years ago, now it's going to be written on our hearts with a, with a thrust and a power that, is, that is, the world has never seen before. And so now, now we can say with David in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law it is my meditation all the day. This law is no longer laid out for our salvation. It can only condemn on its own, but in Christ it is fulfilled. He who came to fulfill it and to see its work accomplished in our hearts. And so now we can say with him, I love your law. I love your law. I tremble at what you tell, I tremble at what you forbid, and I love and embrace what you command. And so I hope you've had some time to think over this law before we come to the Lord's table today. To, to prop up that mirror, to shine that light into your heart, to see where, you know, see where you fall short, and then to come to Christ. Come to Christ above all, who is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the law for us. Let's pray and prepare to worship. Lord God, how we love your law today. Thank you for sharing it with us. Lord, thank you for sharing so much of your thoughts and your nature with us in a way that we can understand. Heavenly Father, we have, Lord, we come after so, thousands of years of human history. We realize that, uh, Lord, we realize that all of our life is just a grapple for the law and for determining what is right and wrong for ourselves, for our neighbors, for all those around us. Lord God, we need your law. We need your clarity. Heavenly Father, human, human ingenuity and what passes for wisdom will fail and disappoint us. So come instead and write your law more fully in our hearts today that we may leave here uh, living more ple- and more pleasing to Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.